You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the devil in the dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band, Great Song. Especially with the song like Dad Vibes is the lead single. What the hell could this album possibly be? What are you drinking? Is that, are you drinking coffee at 8, 16 p.m. at night? Starbucks double shot energy. Jesus fucking Christ, Jeremy. I live in a different time zone. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, listen, I want to show you something, okay? I want to show you this. Check it out. Check, check, show it to check this out, Jeremy. Okay, hold on. Oh, yeah. I was, like, looking at you. No, no, no. You need to listen. Okay. Yeah, I got it. I got All it. right. Okay. Hello. <laughs> what was that? Nah, this is my German accent. <laughs> no, that's not a German accent. Yeah, it's a German accent. Very good German accent. I'm making up for uh, last time <laughs> with the bad accents. This is a much better German accent. That was like six countries through <laughs> one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> this is like an around the world in 30 words situation here. What does this have to do with today's episode? <sighs> Absolutely nothing. Oh, but this does. <laughs> right. I, you, okay, you're... You're, I heard Australian. Yeah, it's my Australian accent. There's my Australian accent, uh, right? Okay, there. so let's see. You got Danish for today? Yeah. If this is for yeah. the pod? Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah I got the. Well, well for, for the record, don't worry, folks. None of this is going to happen in the episode. I just right, got, I got to get this out of me at the start. But yeah, no, here it is. Okay, check it out. This is my Danish accent. This, this, is, this is my Danish accent. Hold on, hold on. This is my Danish accent. <laughs> so then let's hear Norwegian. This is my Norwegian accent. <laughs> that is literally the same. Yeah, how about that? And hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast that will piss you off. This is season two, episode one of Bad Band. Great song. Uh, back, back in the sun, dun, 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 with the groove about that song side. says, back in the sea, hey, and everybody, I am your host, Andrew Patrick Felix. That's how the song goes. I don't know. I, I did not rehearse that one for this. Anyway, I'm your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and with me is your other host of the show, Jeremy Cohen. Jerry. Hi, doing it? Feels good to be back, man. Yeah, that was the that was the big most enthusiasm. That was. Oh, Season premiere enthusiasm right there. That was the most enthusiasm I've had in the past three weeks. I don't know about you. But anyway, the artist we're focusing our critique on today is Natalie Imbruglia and her cover song, Torn.
This is how I feel. Yeah, I know. I'm cold <laughs> and I'm afraid. <laughs> lying naked <laughs> on the floor. What a dark a song, actually. Never change. Wow, holy shit. This is how I feel. I wish you folks at home could see what I'm seeing right now. Jeremy is like I'm, actually giving this is all right now. It's like a really tender, beautiful moment. I'm cold and I'm afraid. Lying naked on the floor. I really know those four lines round and round. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it is a this is the song. That it, it's very know. affecting. And it so... Is. Torn, the version we're discussing today is the whimsical and, dr- as Jerry showed us, the whimsical and dreamy, gentle, angst, coffee shop, singer, songwriter, pop song covered by Natalie and Brulia for her debut album, Left of the Middle. And as an extra homage, Andrew and I will be recording this whole podcast <laughs> lying naked on the floor. <laughs> I mean... That's not too far off, actually, from the, how the POD episode was recorded. That was just on the floor, and I was in, I was in my underwear, baby. Anyway, Torn is not only Imbruglia's biggest hit, it's kind of her only real hit. She certainly never had any other song come remotely close to Torn's success. Well, her acoustic cover is even bigger than any of her other songs. Like her acoustic <laughs> rendition of her big song is bigger than any of the other ones still. I didn't notice that. That's amazing. Thank you for choking. That's phenomenal. Oh, man. But Torn would also be a point of controversy for Imbruglia. In many ways, Torn is bigger than any single person attached to it, you see. You see, for today, anyway, Imbruglia's story isn't so much her story but rather Torn's story. Yeah, don't worry. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna tell you a whole lot about Natalie and Brulia. But before we get yeah, there, for sure. <laughs> and before we get there, and all throughout, we're gonna be telling Torn's story. But if you're wondering about those fans or stands, well, shit. I don't think we're exactly kicking the hornet's nest with this one. <laughs> but as we'll discuss, Imbruglia doesn't really have fans, or definitely not even really stands. Yeah, there are people who are obsessed with Torn. There are people who enjoy other songs of hers quite immensely. And there are those who just check her music out. And don't forget about the people that sing it every single time they go to karaoke. And that's honestly probably the largest audience. But anyway, let's talk, let's talk about it just a bit. She doesn't go on tour, you know? Strange. She's never been on tour. Not. She's she played shows? She she plays a show every so often festivals, one-off nights, two nights in a row, years apart. So, you know, this is probably not really a controversial way of starting season two. Yeah, I guess we're starting pretty light here for sure. <laughs> yeah, easing you all in. But listen, I, I'm sure there's some wine o'clock mommy blogger, Mormon or whatever. The hell it is, it's gonna be upset at us somewhere. But yeah, I don't I don't really see people coming for our throats here when we say Natalie Imbruglia is definitely a bad band or artist. She's probably a better actress, to be <laughs> real. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's actually prop yes, like actually. Yeah. Yeah, like I agree with you. Yeah. That's not I was gonna try to make a joke about it, but I just agree no, with she's you. She's probably a better actress. Yeah. But anyway, as always, while we look at that, we're not here to prove to the die <laughs> the Natalie Imbruglia diehards that Natalie Imbruglia is bad. No, we're here to challenge the skeptics to recognize the greatness of her cover of the song 
torn. There's really something to be said about an artist's biggest song being a cover. Really, it? yeah. It it's really, really is. It's a, it's a strange one. But hey, again, like you said, she's a good actress. She's a good actress. Yeah. She puts it on. We're going to be talking about that later, folks. A little planting seeds early on. So we're going to examine Natalie Imbruglia and the song Torn in detail to articulate how and why. Ooh, I missed this. To make the case... That though Natalie Imbruglia is a is a bad band <laughs> artist, Torn is a great song. So let's talk about it. So folks, how far back can a single thread really go? Where do you find the one key point of origin, the anchor, the backstitch, before one thread is woven deeply into other fabrics crossed with other threads? I think it starts as like how long the spool is. <laughs> the egg. The egg came first. The egg. the egg came first. Yeah. Really, I, Jeremy, you, you solved, you single handedly have solved some big things on this show. I want you to know that. I don't want that to go unrecognized. But anyway, folks, if that opening sounds familiar, it should. If it doesn't, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. We hope you have a wonderful time. Thanks for coming. In fact, we have. We hope you have the time of your life. And I can't wait to do that, man. <laughs> oh, Jerry, that was so subtle and good. I like that. Ooh, that, was, that, that turned me on. Damn. But here we are again, folks. We find ourselves in a place that is similar to where we were the last time we all got together. We once again have a story that doesn't start with our main character. Oh, this is going to be one of those like four start <laughs> starts. <laughs> An hour like, and a oh, half but, into the episode. Uh, maybe we should start here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. An hour and a half in. So our story starts in. Begin. Just to be clear, in the context of today's key song, our main character is not our main character. In fact, in fact perhaps it's more fair to say that for today's episode... The song is the main character, more than ever. I think that's really true. Yeah, right? Yeah. It actually is. <laughs> wow, starting the season off agreeing. We'll see, how, we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. Anyway, Torn is a tad cursed. At least you could see it that way. It's a song that's bigger than any of the key individuals associated with it. It's a song that's been covered many times, and even though it was originally written by some people in a rock band, those people in a rock band weren't even the first to record and release it professionally. Torn is a bizarrely cursed song. It's weird. But, and, and, and to further support my, my spurious and absurd claim that the song is actually cursed, Torn is, is actually a bit of a double-edged sword for Natalie Imbruglia, and she's the artist who succeeded with and benefited the most from Torn. About 8.3 thousand downvotes on the official YouTube video of the song are kind of an indication of this, no matter how ultimately insignificant that derision, that downvote derision is. Indeed, Imbruglia, the most successful artist to cover Torn, faced significant backlash for this cover, and she also never had a hit of such stature ever again. To be clear, though, she's she's okay. Don't don't worry, folks. This isn't a sad story. Well, that's good. I'm relieved to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The last episode was a little bit a little heavy at times. Yeah. yeah. Well, in fact, regarding Imbruglia's backlash due to Torn, an August 28th, 2017 New York Post article clearly indicates that even in 2017. 
people were still angry at and bewildered by Natalie Imbruglia covering Torn. But we'll get to that when we get to that. I'm excited for this one. I've really got no idea <laughs> what all the story is here. <laughs> who, who knew there would be right? a whole episode of anything for this time? <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. So yeah. <laughs> how does the curse of Torn begin? Well, it begins with three key individuals, Anne Previn, Scott Cutler, and Phil Thornley. So this is the beginning of the episode. This is, <laughs> and our story begins in 1991. Songwriter and musician and future record producer Anne Previn officially moved back to her home of New York, specifically New York City. The Big Apple. The Big Apple. <laughs> she had recently graduated from Harvard. Her education was an extension of her experience as a teen working in mental health. Her father, David Previn, is a psychiatrist based in New York City, actually. This is worth noting due to the deeply personal and uh, kind of mental health-focused nature of Previn's songwriting. It's got to be a brutal kind of father to grow up with. <laughs> Just like always psychoanalyzing yeah. anything, everything yeah. Yeah, that yeah, you're yeah. doing like as you grow up. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, there's jokes here that I'm not even going to begin tapping into. That's really wild. Anyway, but in 1991 in New York City, what Previn was going through was a bit of trial and error. She had begun working with songwriter Scott Cutler. At some point in 19, between 1991 and 1993, the duo met and began working with a particular Englishman, Phil Thornley. Thornley is an accomplished musician with a wickedly strange edge, and that was already who he was by the time he began working with Previn and Cutler in the early 90s. Thornley, you see, had cut his teeth by age 21, doing what most would only dream about mixing records for the psychedelic furs, and eventually producing The Cure's 1982 masterpiece, in my opinion, masterpiece, in many people's opinion, pornography, and ultimately going on tour with The Cure as their bassist. All that by 21. How about that? That's pretty fucking crazy. That's pretty incredible. Right? And just had to have been a super fun band to tour with at the time. Especially at that time, because Robert yeah. Smith was doing a lot of mushrooms at that time. <laughs> yeah, they were He was probably... doing a lot of mushrooms during 1982 in the pornography album. He would paint his uh, eyes with lipstick, so they, so because normal makeup would kind of hold better, like normal eye makeup. He painted his eyes with lipstick, so as he sweat, it would look like his eyes were bleeding. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, yeah cool right? He <laughs> cool did, yeah. <laughs> Some real out there, real out there cat. Thornley, after the cure and all that stuff, would then briefly front a band called Johnny Hates Jazz before coming to the conclusion that he's more of a, quote, studio guy. And he would actually meet Scott Cutler during this time, which is very interesting. And this, in rather cursory fashion, brings us to about 1991 to 1993. It's sadly rather indeterminate when Torn was, was actually written, but... It definitely happened around then. Some sources say Torn was written in 91. Others say 93. Let's just call it 92. I th I, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, I think you're actually kind of right, too, though. So based uh, on the timeline and accounting for the speed of telecommu telecommunications in the very early 90s. Yeah, because people were still mostly using carrier <laughs> pigeons. And fire and then, you know, right, right. smoke, smoke signal, exactly. signals. Yes, 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 yes. So I'm going to assume that this song was written and demoed between... Like Jerry said, late ninety two and at the, the at the earliest early ninety three, because the first ever professional release of this song happened in nineteen ninety-three. We also have a good clue to go off of with Thornley telling Paul Myers from Tape Op that he was quote 
<laughs> totally unemployed, very cold, and seriously not getting any gigs when Previn and Cutler came to work with him in London. And when reviewing Thornley's output, 1993 stands out for only having one Thornley project being released then, and every other year he has like two, three, you know? Yeah, I mean, all it takes is uh, one great project for people to travel to you, though, and do some work. He would say in many interviews that the song changed his life. So, yeah. yeah, it's crazy what just one track can do. So, plus or minus a few months, it's definitely, it's around this time when Previn, Cutler, and Thornley meet in London to work on songs for an for Anne Previn's demo tape. In a September 22nd, 2015 article for songfacts.com, Thornley, oh, yes. <laughs> the prestigious songfacts.com, Thornley is interviewed by journalist Amanda Flinner. This interview provides us with a first-hand account from Thornley on the making of Torn. Songfacts.com, where you get all your facts about songs. Pretty amazing website. Like, that URL is incredible. It is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's very good. And they deliver <laughs> with facts. And so here are some facts for you. Thornley says, quote, I'd worked with Scott Cutler, who's one of the writers, and his other songwriting partner, Anne Previn. She wanted to present herself as an artist, so Scott thought that the combination of the three of us would be interesting. And he was right. So we were uh, writing demos for Anne, and Torn was one of the songs. It was years before the Natalie and Brulia version. At the time, nobody signed Anne, and then Scott and Anne had a band called Edna Swap, and they did some really kind of mm, dirgy versions of Torn. But whoa, 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 Phil! Thornley is getting ahead of himself, and us, and us. You see, Scott Cutler and Anne Previn's band, Edna Swap, was not the first to record tor Torn. Hell, we haven't even gotten to them forming yet, you know? Edna Swap is such a sick band <laughs> it name. It is a sick name, yeah. And we've already have, they, they have like quite a few cool songs. They do. Yeah, they do. They definitely do. They don't have the worst songs. I would way rather being in the car with my mom and her putting on an Edna Swap CD <laughs> than a Natalie Imbruglia CD. Like, like, <laughs> Imbruglia. Imbruglia. It's, it's an Italian name, Jeremy. She's a paisan. I, she's Australian. Kangaroo. <laughs> Kangaroo Imbruglia. So you know what's actually funny about that is, especially because in America we have these jokes you can't be racist towards Italians. She actually experienced racism for being Italian back home in Australia. And apparently it was very sad and traumatic for her. And I don't mean, so it's very sad. But But how wild is that? That's pretty wild. That's pretty wild. Australia is just a wild place. It, it, the size of their spiders are like the size of my face. You don't like that at all, I do you? I hate that. I bet you don't. Although, uh, I don't kill spiders. I let those spider bros hang, and they kill the other bugs that I don't like. What if it was the size of your face? I would kill that fucker. I would kill that fucker dead on sight. Anyway, back to the show. Sure. So wow. thanks. To, I'm not going to incriminate myself further by detailing how I'm going to murder a spider. Anyway, a spider the size of my face. But anyway. I don't think it's criminal to murder a spider. I don't know enough about spider law to debate that. But anyway, so sure. You know, spider thanks to law. demos that we're never going to hear. And Previn and presumably Scott Cutler and Phil Thornley were, were definitely technically the first to record the song they wrote, Torn. But they were not at all the first to professionally 
record torn and actually release it. No, you see, that would happen by someone else somewhere else. In that songfacts.com interview, Thornley snaps back around to add back in the steps he skipped. Quote, there was also an A&R man in Denmark called uh, Paul Braun, uh, who was such a, such a genius and so positive, and he always loved that song before anyone else. He was the first person to use it with a Danish artist, and then he used it again with a Norwegian artist who had some local success. Sometimes I lie. <laughs> so he had some, with some local success with it in Norway. Enter Danish pop star Liz Sorensen. Also sick name. Very sick name. We have some cool band names here. We do, we really do. In 1993, Sorensen was a seasoned veteran and well-known Danish pop star. Her career began in the 1960s as a child pop star in the girl group, The Five. The Five eventually dissolved and Sorensen began studying classical music. <laughs> It's fun, fun diversion. She put that classical education, by the way, to use by joining the pop rock girl group Shit and Chanel in 1974. That's wow. Shit and Chanel. That's Shit and Chanel. That's really amazing. We've got so many cool band names in this episode. So mm, far. Tremendous. Shit and Chanel. And after four albums, Shit and Chanel were done. By 1979, the brighter you burn. Yeah. You know what I mean? The brighter you burn. I hear you. Yeah. Shit I and Chanel. You, after the chats for Shit and Chanel. Well, after another stint in another person's band, this time the Ann Linnet band, Sorensen finally decided it was time to be solo. And start looping some spacey, trippy shit <laughs> in their bedroom. I, I mean... Smoking bongs. Yo, that is I probably where their version of Torn came from. And we're going to get into that. A little bit. Oh, yeah. So this brings us to Paul Braun connecting her with Thornley, Previn, and Cutler and their song, Torn. Liz Sorensen is the first person to professionally record and release Torn. You mean Brandt? Uh-huh, exactly. Brandt, which I guess is burnt. I, I maybe. No, you're, you're right. That is very right. That is actually right. I, I, I Googled that. <laughs> I wish I was impressive. I should have taken credit. <laughs> I just Googled that. I mean, I, 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 I Googled it too. That's how I was able to verify it and tell you so confidently that you were right. <laughs> we're, we, we're, we are, what are we if not Google scholars, Jeremy? It's true. We both have access to the platform. <laughs> Google. <laughs> well, Brunt is Sorensen's version. And that version, in fact, that that version set the template for Imbruglia's version. As we'll hear with the versions Previn and Cutler eventually record, their take on the song is 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 just straight up alternative pop indie styled singer songwriter rock stuff, right? But Sorensen's version takes the song out of the dingy punk bar and brings it into the bougie middle-of-the-road coffee shop replete with soft trip-hop beats languishing in limp massive attack style synths pat metheny metheny i don't know i never liked that fucking guy i don't know i'm gonna say his name pat metheny light smooth jazz douchebag octave chord bullshit fuckery and and an overall production value that makes the whole thing just kind of sound like a jam track
lidt omkring Kan ikke sove mere Stoppe vinduet og se Den sidste bus, det sidste stoppested Og jeg ønsker højt og håber vildt At se at du er med Og giver mit trætte hjerte fred For angsten den giver aldrig op Når angsten bor i sjæl og krop den kommer op som nemt Hjertet som ved brand Tusind gange før Er en som lånet alt Og smækket og sindet Lød mig ligge blå og brændt Lille fangens vej Med drømmen af brændt af Nu er jeg fuld af tvivl om du Yeah, something you could have gotten in one of those Starbucks mix CDs Absolutely. they used to sell, like at the counter. No, this shit has strong like you buy this at the at the cash wrap at Starbucks or Barnes and Noble energy. Yeah, this yeah. song really, yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> you can very very clearly and easily chart a a path of iteration throughout the three major pop releases of Torn. And spoiler alert: Edna Swap's version isn't quite part of that and you're probably asking really when are you going to explain what edna swap actually is we'll get there first in 1993 liz Sorensen released her album under sternjernetstead cool. <laughs> <laughs> yep under sternjernetstead on that album was a song titled brunt and as jeremy told us brunt means burned or burnt I guess I swelled that. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I, we have a good circular style of storytelling that I think it's really like Finnegan's Wake. It really just, you got to pay attention, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it keeps you on your toes and makes you realize that time is just a meaningless flat circle. But brunt, 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 a word that in a very loose way kind of, oh boy, I could how connotations sort of similar to the word torn when we're thinking about the psychological state of someone who may use those words to describe themselves. Either way, similar energy, same, but different, you know. Threads. <laughs> and uh, both, if you tore a thread or if you burned a thread, they'd probably both be broken. <laughs> I don't know. You lost. <laughs> I, I was going to say you lost me there. <laughs> Like, where are you going with this? But you know what? I like so where you took us. I like where you took us. Threads. Sometimes you got to get to uncomfortable places to really find the, the true yourself. genius in art. Yeah, and yourself. So anyway, as you may have deduced by now, folks, Brunt is torn. But with the lyrics not merely translated, but really rather completely rewritten, much like the words burned and torn, uh, the meaning of the lyrics, Brunt versus Torn, those lyrics, pretty much, again, it's, you know, same, same, but different. Pretty, pretty different. Same energy. <laughs> different words. Very, very different words. Yeah, this is a 99 Luftballoon situation <laughs> where it's like a direct translation. Yeah, exactly. No. It's not that. It's, it's not that at all. But though the meaning, the sense of Brunt is quite different from Torn, the sound of Brunt is quite similar to Natalie Imbruglia's rendition of Torn. 
Now, around this time in America, Ann Previn and Scott Cutler had joined forces with a bassist named Paul Bushnell and a drummer named Carla Azar. Together, the foursome formed the band Edna Swap. Oh, ho, ho. And we made it. The band released their debut self-titled album on May 9th, 1995 via East West Records. Not in India. It was started by Atlantic Records, which at the time was indeed owned by Warner. Womp, womp. I got to just quick aside here. I'm just so confused with all this record label jibble jamble at this Nuts. point. It's crazy. It's really crazy. I feel like we... I don't, we have enough. We have a long list of bonus episodes at this point. <laughs> we need to like figure out. I, I, like I'm so curious why. Mm. Why start all these tiny subsidiaries and whatever you want to call them, like little labels under your label group? I just don't understand the actual right. motivation right. behind it. Like I just. Uh, like I understand limited liability as a corporations and all that shit. And I mean, it just doesn't seem like that could be enough of the reason. I think something that happens sometimes is an executive with enough power and like capital and ability to raise capital on their own wants to start their own smaller thing that then maybe they could have like, eventually try to siphon off. I don't know. But you it's know, like not their own if they're just no, like you're under right. the umbrella. It's just right. like isn't their own. It's like this bullshit illusion where it's like, I don't even understand. It would just be so much cooler for East West to just call themselves Atlantic or just take it a step further. Everybody just called fucking Warner. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, like what, what, just, there's clearly some weird shady. That would be like, an I interesting thing to explore. I just don't understand it. I don't understand it either. And when you break it down like that, it definitely sounds... I mean, again, this is all... The music the, the music industry... The fucking racket! Yeah. So... No, of course. Of course. But what, so I, I, uh, without a question, and why this, though? Why this part of the racket? Right. Right, right. Just, there has to be a why. I just don't... I don't... We got to try to figure... We got to do deep... We got to get to the... We got to get... We got to get to the goddamn bottom... Of this record industry bullshit. <laughs> Here we are through storytelling. <laughs> uh, but with Edna Swap's debut album, real just smooth segue there. But with Edna Swap's debut album, we get the first English language professional recording and release of Torn. This Edna Swap version, however, deviates from the pop template. That would be the defining arrangement of the song. So let's listen to Edna Swap's first version of Torn. Change. 
when I said that Edna Swap's version was not part of the core chartable trajectory of the song. Well, neither version, really. Yes, neither Edna Swap version. We'll get there. But it has to be considered, of course. It's the first uh, recording of the song in English, and it's the first version of the song professionally released by the band that wrote it. But... As far as arrangement, production, and stylistic presentation goes, the two Edna Swap versions are nothing like the three big pop versions of the song. Well, actually, actually, maybe I misspoke. There is one key and iconic element that this first Edna Swap version adds to the song's heritage. The quote, solo. What Torn fans refer to as the solo is not And yes, Torn fans. Again, the song has a bigger fan base than any one audience, uh, any one artist. But anyway, what the fans refer to as the solo is not actually a solo, not in the guitar shredding sense anyway. It's that iconic, lilting, legato, melodic figure of music played by a guitar, most likely with a slide, that sets off and defines the outro of the song. Let's listen to how that iconic solo evolves. Here it is in the Edna Swap version. Now, here we have it in the yet-to-be-discussed Trin Rain version. We'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. And finally, here it is in the Natalie Imbruglia version. For fans of this song, this is like the ending of November Rain. It's iconic. It makes people's hair stand on end and get goosebumps. The, Gal- the galvanic response. Shout out to Wes Scantlin. Oh, that name gives me goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. No, the wrong kind of goosebumps. Yeah. And it instantly makes people think 
of Imbruglia's charming, carefree, fuck-it-all dance at the end of her video. So actually, if only for that, this Edna Swap version 1 is pretty damn crucial. But like any good indie band that doesn't understand what slaps, this iconic melodic legato slide solo is by no means the orgasmic and climactic send-off it would soon become. A little studio production and some hired guitarists could make your dumb song way better, huh? It's kind of amazing. Yeah. This is to say, anyway, that Edna Swap's version really comes off as an odd curio, a strange diversion, a branched path. It does indeed offer up important elements, but something about it and its place in the world and its actual execution makes it kind of feel like a fascinating footnote in the song's story, frankly, as opposed to feeling like something that deserves its own chapter. I mean, a big thing besides the actual music is the lyrics, so you can't really shake it up. No, you can't. And Anne Previn yeah. wrote, I mean, so yes, I mean, absolutely, the Edna Swap version is, is definitely crucial, but if we're just looking at it through the lens of the Natalie Imbruglia version, right. it doesn't sonically lend too much. Whereas, other than that iconic solo, but I, you know, well, we'll, 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 talk, we'll talk more about that quite soon. <laughs> but with all that said, I would be a deeply flawed historian and critic if I didn't make this clear. Edna Swap's version is 100% the most authentic, raw, and emotionally resonant version of Torn. If I were going off my personal tastes in music alone, I, I, would, I would tell you that this is the best version. Edna Swap weren't pop stars. They were not pop stars with machines behind them. Their version... Is a real band playing a real song. Hell yeah, rock and roll, bro. Hell yeah, rock and roll, brother. But as someone looking beyond my own tastes, it's not a very meaningful next step forward in this song's journey. Again, in the lens of Natalie Imbruglia's version. Odd stance to have, I know, but I really do think it's also useful, a useful filter for viewing the song as being no one's property. Even though it is. It absolutely is the intellectual property of the people who wrote it, but we're not here to talk about song law. So, no, we're here to talk. <laughs> spider well, law. We're here for spider law. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly. But something we can comment on, Edna Swap's 1995 debut didn't make waves, and Torn was not a song that blew up. But this is far from the end of the song's story. So our story begins in 19... Yeah. No. Yeah, no, no, no. This, but this does lead us to 1996. And I know, right? Yeah. Too uh, early to start know. the story. Yeah, too early to start the story, exactly. This leads us to 1996 and the Norwegian singer Trine Rain. Rain's version is the core second full step in this song's iterative Evolution. It was released on her English language album, Beneath My Skin. I thought I saw a man brought to life. He was warm, he came around like he was dignified. He showed me what it was to cry. Beat that man, I adore You don't seem to know, don't seem to care What your heart is for I don't know him anymore There's nothing where he used to 
takes the lead from Sorensen's version while harnessing the primal scream of Edna Swap's version and also its legato slide guitar outro. And boy, does it take that slide guitar figure of music places. Frankly, Sorensen's brunt smacked of this chuggy live-laugh-a-love energy. It, it sounded like an L.L. Bean catalog, but in Danish. <laughs> Wait, come again? I feel like I've... <laughs> I barely know what that sentence means, honestly. Like I, that sentence made me feel too old and too young to get the references at the same time. I don't know if I've ever seen an LL Bean. Catalog. I love that you may have never seen an LL Bean catalog. That's amazing. Like you know, like I definitely like kind of remember getting like catalogs, but I don't know if I ever know. I like I don't. LLB doesn't stand out. And Chugi is also so recent of a word and reference. It is, yeah. You're really throwing It's become me one of my favorite. It's become one of my favorites, yeah. I've learned it from you. Mm-hmm. I learned this from you. Isn't this wonderful? Just what things I teach you, Jeremy. Anyway, Trine <laughs> Rain's version is the first time we can hear Torn being positioned as a true pop song with also a, a bit of a cutting edge. I get that. Okay, good. That yes. makes sense. But in my opinion, Rain's version is of note for another reason. It's, other than Edna Swap's version, the only version where the singer, kind of the, the main character of the song, kind of sounds stronger, not only despite, but perhaps even due to the heartbreak described in the song. And that comes down to, right down to who Trine Rain is. I challenge you all folks at home to watch this video and listen to her performance and tell me if she does not come off as very strong and powerful. Another reason that Rain's version is of note is because it essentially gives Imbruglia's version its bridge. And it also elevates the Edna Swap written lilting slide guitar melody, another element Imbruglia's version would really make use of. Oh, and lastly, by the way, this is the first high-profile English Reigns version. This is the high, first high-profile English language recording and release of the song. In many ways, this song is a crucial link in getting to Imbruglia's version of the song. In fact, I'd argue that Imbruglia's version of the song took the most from Reigns' version of the song, and that's going to come around in a bit. Guess what? We'll get there. Let's go. On September 11th, 1996, John Ruse of the LA Times covered Edna Swap's 1996 EP, Chicken. Chicken Chicken. was a five-track EP to whet the appetite ahead of the band's forthcoming sophomore album. This EP contained the forthcoming album's re-recording of Torn. Now, I bring this up because in this article, which predates Imbruglia's cover of Torn... Torn is merely just one of the other songs on the EP. Ruse is not overwhelmed by it. He liked it. He was affected by it. But it didn't stand out at all as anything more than just another raw and intense track off that EP. And perhaps 
That's due to how Edna Swap chose to arrange and perform this version of Torn. Let's let's get into that. Let's talk about it. March 4th, 1997. It was a Tuesday, and so... New music was released that day, as are new episodes of Bad Bad Great Song. Yeah, don't forget to like, subscribe, follow us on Instagram. Leave a review Twitter, if you're doing the Apple Podcast thing. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars only. Five stars you trying only. to fuck on us? You tried to... We're, 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 you're just shooting us like fish in a barrel over hey, here. Come on. It is my, my, my. Say, that was our tribute to the Italian culture in this episode. And Edna Swap released their sophomore <laughs> album, <laughs> Wacko Magento. That's, see, that's, that's actually what happened on March 4th, 1997, folks. Anyway, Wacko Magento is p- perhaps most notable for containing Torn Version 2 by Edna Swap, as we just alluded to. It often gets cited as being released after Imbruglia's version. Not so. It came out, in fact, about seven months before Imbruglia's version did. Hmm. How about that? Very interesting stuff there, huh? Edna Swap is so good at naming things. They are. Yeah, they really are. This Edna Swap version is sadly the only version you'll find on Spotify. It's a fine version, don't get me wrong. It's definitely the most melancholic, indulgent, challenging, and dare I even say listless version of the song? It's kind of morose and precious. This is what Phil Thornley was really referring to when he when he slightly misspoke and implied that both versions by Edna Swap were dirges. No, 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 no. The first version rocked. This is a dirge. Well, at least they got to professionally record it. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, totally. No, for sure. Uh, by the way, this version, despite having been the ones that wrote it, this, this band on this re-recording, they did not include that iconic legato slide guitar figure of music in the outro. Mm. Mm. It's frustrating because with the benefit of hindsight, it seems like the very authors of the song were the ones who kind of knew the least of, of what to do with the song. The first version of the song by Edna Swap is a badass rock song that with more polishing could have been a kind of soft riot girl anthem, you know? You think they didn't know what to do with it or they just had like different goals? Diff- like I doubt Edna Swap was targeting that live, laugh, love Starbucks crowd, you know? I think they had different goals, but I also don't think they necessarily made like a pop rock song. They could have made maybe like a more polished rock song is all I mean that would maybe have right. a little more crossover appeal. I hear you. I hear you. Okay. So, and then the second version, 
I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I personally don't think the second version was needed at all. I believe that should have been a, a B side bonus track. You know, like after the actual B side in the three track single release format with the more energetic and lively version of Torn being the A side. This is an interesting experiment. Don't get me wrong, but if they were going to go with the heavy and mellow dramatic approach, I think it should have been given the modern, the more modern for the times kind of pop rock power ballad treatment that no doubts don't speak had in my opinion. Anyway, again, if they wanted this to be some sort of pop crossover hit, Well, anyway, <laughs> now all while this was going, folks. all while this was going, you hear this, folks? <laughs> I say, folks. You say, don't tell me you say, folks. I don't know. I was yelling. Now, all while this is going on in America, Denmark, and Norway, something seemingly completely unrelated was going on. In Australia. I knew you were going to do the Or <laughs> during and after Torn's initial genesis. Our story begins on January 6th, 1992. Yeah, there was the light. character of Beth Brennan made her on-screen debut in the popular Australian soap opera, Neighbors. Beth Brennan was played by a young actress by the name of Natalie Jane Imbruglia. She was just 16 years old at the time, about to turn 17. No one could ever say we don't teach you things on this podcast. You've never heard of the show Neighbors. <laughs> ever. And now you know there's an Australian soap called Neighbors. Imbruglia found fame difficult to deal with, as she says in interviews, but she also loved it. As she says in interviews, in an August 22nd, 1998 New York Times piece by Lucida Lopez Torregrosa, Imbruglia says, quote, if I was depressed, I could go shopping. I was a little big for my britches. That self-reflection kind of comes from someplace. Not quite as self-aware as Shifty, though. <laughs> Shifty be stay the most self-aware. Shifty is enlightened. He is enlightened. Stay enlightened. <laughs> you stay in life. As he definitely stays high, yeah. Oh, maybe not anymore. Yeah. Sorry. Bad joke, bad joke, bad joke. As Tor Grosser writes, quote, two years later in 1994, she left the soap and moved to London and for a time enjoyed the lingering adulation. Then she crashed. She couldn't get work as an actress. She was broke. Her visa was expiring. Out of desperation, she said, she started writing. And so... Just as everything was falling apart for Imbruglia, things were starting to come together. Some could say maybe she was torn. Mm, bound and broken on the floor. Yes, exactly. How about that? In an event that is the stuff of legends, Imbruglia would have a fateful evening at a local pub. Imbruglia met the woman who would become her manager and set off a chain of events that would change Imbruglia's life. A woman named, named Anne. Not, not Anne Previn, but a woman named Anne Barrett. But Anne Barrett had a mutual connection with Anne Previn, one that would benefit Imbruglia immensely. Barrett, upon hearing Imbruglia's demo, suggested Imbruglia connect with a man named Phil Thornley. No way. Mm -hmm. 
you folks may remember Thornley is one of the key writers of, of Torn. What a journey mm-hmm. we've been on. Thornley recounts working with Imbruglia to Torregrossa, saying, quote, She brought me a school book full of songs. Her songs were a little bit different from most poppets, more left of center. We picked a few and started putting music to lyrics. The collaboration evolved. She does a lot of the melody. She's very much in there, helping with the arrangement. Tor Grossa goes on to write, quote, Mr. Thornley played Torn for her, and it was her demo tape of the song that locked in the deal with RCA. And that brings us to October 27th, 1997. Natalie Imbruglia's cover of Torn was released as a single in the UK and across Europe soon after. This initial release was just four months after Edna Swap released their second version of Torn. Imbruglia's cover was an instant smash hit across the world, but her success in the US would be sort of artificially limited. Natalie Imbruglia wasn't being pushed in the US until Torn had already become a bona fide hit in the UK and Europe. So this means that promotion in the US was a bit slapdash to say the least. What a crazy oversight. It's insane, man. It's absolutely nuts. Anyway, Natalie Imbruglia's debut album, Left of the Middle, was already out abroad. It was not out in the US. So to make up for this, a cassette release was rushed out before 1997 came to a close. But you see, even in 1997, folks, cassette-only releases were not the way to succeed. Definitely not. No. Sales were not great. Another gap in the U.S. market for Imbruglia was made by her actual single not getting a physical release in 1997. This technicality, not having a physical single to buy, prevented Torn from being allowed to chart on the Billboard Hot 100. You see, before December 5th, 1998, a single needed a separate and dedicated commercial release, i.e. a a physical purchasable product to be, it needed that to be ranked in the Billboard Hot 100. I guess that do- does totally make sense. Like, right. how yes. else would yeah, they track sure. things at the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is one of those things that I guess, unfortunately, like by the time it changes, it feels like the change came too late. You know? Totally. Right? Like anything in government. Like anything in government. Bill Bud. Bill Bud. The, the Bill Bud. Bill Bud. Uh, you better believe it charted on Billboard. But, but even though it charted on Billboard by the t- in other charts, by the time it was allowed to be ranked on the Hot 100, the song was kind of on its downturn. We're really starting with the charts? We're starting with the charts, baby. March 10th, 1998, four months after Torn first blew up, Natalie Imbruglia's debut album, Left in the Middle, was finally released in the United States. And it, it, it did well. By April 25th, 1998, the album peaked at number 10 on the Billboard 200. And <laughs> December 5th, by December 5th, 1998, the date Billboard changed its rules to allow for singles without physical releases to chart on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Imbruglia's debut album had slid from number 10 to number 155, which isn't awful. That's nine months after all. Yeah, that's a long time. That's Shh, not terrible at all. It really, Yeah, exactly. But that's nine months of torn not being able to be recognized on the Billboard Hot 100. On April 25th, 1998, when Left to the Middle peaked at number 10 on the Billboard 200, Torn peaked at number two on the Radio Songs chart 
So imagine what it could have done on the Billboard 100 if it were allowed to actually chart at that time, right? Well, nine months later, on December 5th, 1998, when it was finally allowed to be recognized on the Hot 100, it debuted and peaked at number 42. Not terrible still. Not terrible still, but for how big that song was, it, it, if you, it, uh, uh, and Bruley was done dirty here, at least in America. The way that album was released, the, the way that single was, was released, Billboard's rules, this was just a clusterfuck of crazy timing and poor judgment. That said, Left of the Middle is certified double platinum by the RIAA, so it, it's not like the album didn't do well commercially in the States, but it's interesting to think about what could have been if everything was a believed in and, and well-coordinated effort from, from Jump. This wacky release schedule isn't the only way Torn was a double-edged sword for Umbrulia. You see, in the 90s till about the early 2010s, authenticity was a big deal in a way that it isn't now, for better and for worse. Not being a paper-thin commercial pop star built by a machine was kind of important back then. <laughs> Quote-unquote real music fans were skeptical of artists who came out of nowhere without laying a foundation for themselves before and separate from the record industry's calculated, manufactured, and manicured hype machine took over. Especially if their origin is from a soap opera in another country, right? <laughs> Well, I imagine very few people actually even knew about that. Right. Yeah. Imbruglia was, and is, a singer-songwriter. She writes her own songs and has a very folksy style. She was being marketed as a singer-songwriter. She was being marketed as a crossover artist connecting the Lilith Fair crowd with the mainstream. But none of the songs she actually wrote hit that hard. Not at all. Well, and so after all that marketing when a certain subset of vocal people discovered that Imbruglia did not write Torn, they went fucking nuts, as you do, of course. Because you see, <laughs> they didn't accept that this... They just didn't accept this for what it was, which is a fucking cover. No, 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 no. They, they, they saw this as some sort of theft and, and deception, a pop star using someone else's music and lying about it. And... You can Terrible. blame all that, all that misunderstanding, all that. You can blame on on the British tabloid, The Sun. She lied to us. <laughs> I thought her and I had a real connection. Yeah, from right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she stole them. Yeah. I really related to her before. You thought she really wrote that for you. Yeah, I'm going to get my steamroller out. <laughs> and drive soon. over her fucking CDs. <laughs> That's a reference for the folks who are just joining us. Go, go back and listen to the Millie Vanilli episode. Yeah. Should, should, should just do it. Anyway, Alyssa Gardner covered this, this British tabloid freakout for Entertainment Weekly with an article that was last updated. That's how it's dated. It was last updated on March 20th, 1998. Article is titled, Natalie Imbruglia is the newest angst pop princess. Now, in this article, Imbruglia briefly addresses how the sun beget this controversy, which then sort of actually did kind of spiral out. But let me tell you, let me tell you, I searched the fucking internet. I made use of time range tools. I tested many search queries. I could not find this original article from the sun that started it all. I guess it wasn't 
digitized? I don't know. So we're just going to have to take what Natalie says here with Entertainment Weekly at face value. And no, 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 no. I, Jeremy and I, we did not fly to London to go check some English public library to pour over 20-year-old microfilm and microfiche of the fucking sun to get to the bottom of this. Believe it or not, believe it or not, private investigator Andrew Patrick Finelli. Some uh, budgetary constraints. So that aside, hopefully by next season we'll be able to do exactly that. And folks, let me tell you about Patreon. <laughs> yeah, you heard of it? Soon, soon, soon. Get ex- get excited to pay us, folks. We're gonna tell you all about it when it, we're we're ready to tell you about it <coughs> next week. <laughs> Imbruglia tells Gardner for Entertainment Weekly, "Quote you what happened." <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's written. Quote, what happened was the son tried to make a big story out of it. I was naughty Natalie, but I never said I wrote torn and I never said it was written for me. Well, who gave her that nickname? Some horny, disgusting British fuck. Some guy named Seth, probably. Sorry, no apologize to all. No hate if you're named Seth out there. You're a great guy. Anyway, then Imbruglia says something very Interesting. Something potentially packed with with very rich, implicit meaning. Imbruglia says that Trine Rain's record company, quote, had the choice. And again, she just brings this up. She just brings this up. Quote, they had the choice to release Torn in the UK, but they didn't. And so now they're kicking themselves because another artist had success with it. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. Now, I'm just inferring here, not even deducing, just inferring, because there isn't not a lot to support what I'm about to say, other than Imbruglia's own words here. But why did she bring this up? What could she be saying? What is the implicit statement behind the explicit statement, right? Okay. What it sounds like to me uh, is that Imbruglia is subtly suggesting that Trine Rain's team was so upset about not releasing their version in the UK that... They perhaps planted a story with the UK tabloid in, in an effort to not only raise the profile of Rain's version, but also take some of the shine off of Imbruglia. That really wouldn't be surprising at all. Yeah, right? It's kind of scary. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's an easy and thing hey, to do. Listen, I used to work in PR. I've been in marketing for far too long, 10 years. It's kind of depressing and soul-crushing, but things like this happen all the time at a high level, especially with the entertainment industry. Stories are planted, coordinated. You know, you think GQ just decides to put some young celebrity that has a new movie coming coming out soon on their like cover and declare them the future of pop culture just to be nice, <laughs> just to just to be cool, or just because GQ thinks like, hey, I really like this Tom Holland guy. Let's put him on our cover. Oh wow, and he's got a new movie coming out soon, dude. Well, gee golly, who's Tom Holland? <sighs> I think he's the guy. He's the guy. The guy who played Harry Potter. Anyway, sure. So listen. They, yeah. they do it to sell their own magazines, of course. Yes, but they also do it because the big companies that create the media we consume tell the other big companies that own the media outlets that report on the media we consume to push these people as popular entertainers, as stars, to further convince us, the audience, that these people are indeed stars. Entertainment industry. Folks, industry. Threads. Uh... Right? So if indeed Imbruglia is coyly suggesting 
Trine Rain's team engaged in a bit of sabotage here? Well, I just want to say that I agree. I agree. I agree. And if she isn't, then I... I I still stand by everything I said about high-level coordination in the entertainment industry. Yeah. There's literally a dollar amount to just get about any article you want written, published. Pay, sponsored content, pay-to-play. It's a real thing. It's very real. Yeah. And the petty duplicity and career smear attempt story planting we discussed is very real. And the fallout of this in a time that predates social media was so severe that she had to address it in the media. She could have just tweet. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Archaic. <laughs> oh, and by the way, though, speaking of Twitter, Twitter, if you wanted to know. What about Twitter? I'll tell you about Twitter. If you wanted to know. Are you what doing your Danish accent again? <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's go with that. <laughs> that. <laughs> if you wanted to know what this all looked like or would have looked like in the age of social media, 2017 gave us a small decades removed peek into what it may have looked like. August 25th, 2017, NME.com published an article titled, 90s Kids Are Losing Their Shit After Learning Natalie Imbruglia's Torn is a Cover. August 27th, 2017, Yahoo.com's Yahoo News published the article, 1997 Flashback, Natalie Imbruglia Addresses Torn Controversy. And, of course, on August 28th, 2017, the New York Post published the article, the terrible secret behind one of the 90s' greatest pop songs. Wow. Yeah, how about that, huh? What an avalanche. Mm, we've come a long way, haven't we? No. You know, you know, human beings, you know... Between roughly 35,000 and 100,000 years ago, had the same exact brains we have now. We've not changed one bit. Since that most recent 35,000 years ago, we've had the same brains. Isn't that, isn't that something? Threads. People in the Middle Ages. 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 <laughs> same brains we have now. They thought seizures were demonic possessions and grounds for murder if you could not be exercised. Same brains we have now. People in 1998 were upset about Torn being a cover. People in 2017 were upset about Torn being a cover. How about that? Very fascinating. Interesting stuff, huh? Did Try and Rain release a record that year? <laughs> oh, man. So perhaps when accepting the... Re I actually don't know. I think she's still releasing albums, which is kind of funny. But anyway, when accepting the reality of evolution... Like if she just did it again, she was like, oh, well, fuck it. I'm dropping yeah. something. Let's like dig up this Bruglia garbage. Fucking be amazing. That'd be tremendous. Well, anyway, when perhaps accepting the reality of evolution, when cons <laughs> considering the scale, the monumentality of true species-wide growth and progression, perhaps then it's not so surprising that we're the same fucking idiots we were roughly only 20 years ago. She did release an album in 2017. Are you fucking kidding me? In January, January 27th, 2017. So just look out like, you know. So this all was started by <laughs> somebody on Twitter, which we're about to get into. But I wonder, it's a Twitter profile that's been deleted. And it's, oh my God, dude. 
Wow, what if you're onto something here? Wow. Wow. There's something else that I noticed that'll come up a bit later. Okay. But another weird, like, circular possible underground dig here. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay, just well, hold on. I hope you I hope you remember bringing that up when we get there. I think I will. All right. Well, basically, folks, if you're wondering how this started, some Twitter user named Vilinsky Konyik, whose account is now deleted, basically just tweeted out, quote, every 90s kid comes of age three times, 18th birthday, 21st birthday, the day they found out Natalie and Brulia's version of Torn is a cover. People are so dramatic. Fucking amazing, right? And people reacted. How fun is that? How fun is that? But we've gotten ahead of ourselves just as we do. Now, before we move forward, I just want to be clear that Torn was huge in ways songs kind of aren't now. You had TV and radio. Besides that, you bought your music on a guess cassette or CD. That was how everyone heard music. It was the optimal kind of closed source model for Hollywood and the music industry to promote stars in their vehicles, right? You know, Torn was a massive hit. And due to things like the old billboard rules, just looking at the historical data in the US alone doesn't really paint the full picture. Beyond that, Natalie Imbruglia had no other single from left to the middle reach any billboard chart as detailed by a February 8th, 2002 billboard piece titled Imbruglia Begins Post-Torn Career. But in the UK and Europe in general, Imbruglia's career was kind of doing just fine. Subsequent singles, Big Mistake, Wishing I Was There, and Smoke did just fine on the international charts. Did she cover any more Tried Rain songs? Wow, shots fired. Or, I mean, I was curious. <laughs> Did you do any covers at all? I well, she later released an album entirely of covers. We'll get there. We'll get there. Mm. Yeah, in fact, a piece titled "The Return," the return of Natalie Imbruglia for UK outlet Red. Imbruglia tells journalist Shane Watson, "Quote: I remember being in the car with my manager, and she said, you're a millionaire.' She said it over and over." I just busted my sides. Good for her, I guess. I mean, like, wasn't she acting through all this too, though? Yeah, she had bits and bobs, you know. Oh, yeah, bits and bobs. She had bits and bobs, you know. Of course. Bits and bobs of roles here and there. <laughs> oh, of course. She had exactly. bits, and bits and bobs. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. However. Let's it, move on. I get that. <laughs> it's worth noting that Imbruglia's chart topic success wasn't exactly a sure thing. In the UK, Europe at large, or even her home country of Australia. Left of the Middle's first single, Smoke, did reach the top five in the UK, but it failed to even enter the top 40 back home in Australia. Smoke peaked at number 42 in the Australian charts. Meanwhile, on August 18th, 1998, Edna Swap released their third and final album, Wonderland Park, released via Island Records. Wonderland Park is an instantly slicker and poppier offering from the band Edna Swap. The jagged edges, frayed vocals, and unpolished guitars are gone. That said, all the music on this album is a lot better than, than everything and anything that Natalie Imbruglia has ever and will ever release. Imbruglia is not a very good songwriter, and that's something we'll get into later. But Edna Swap is a real band. 
Case in point, Natalie Imbruglia may be a mega-rich celebrity thanks to the one album and loads of well-programmed endorsement deals. She may still be writing music and herself and, you know, releasing her own records. Yeah, but she barely plays any shows. That's lame as fuck. Also, Edna Swap stays with the cool namings. <laughs> exactly. And Previn, however has had a rich and remarkable career as a music industry veteran. She's a songwriter and producer for other artists, artists who are a lot bigger than Natalie Imbruglia. Previn has gone on to produce albums for Sinead O'Connor, Miley Cyrus, Katy Perry, Demi Lovato, and most recently, the Cinderella album for Camila Cabello vehicle, for that Camila Cabello vehicle, Cinderella, that jukebox musical. But before any of that, Wonderland Park would suffer from the... Curse of Torn. Wonderland Park was Edna Swap's final stab at stardom. It was the last shot at success. However, due to Torn being such a massive hit for someone else, Wonderland Park was being seen as a sort of prove-your-worth follow-up. Wonderland Park did not have a song of Torn's caliber. Hell, as we've discussed, Edna Swap kind of didn't, or as I suggested anyway, as Edna Swap doesn't really entirely know what to do with Torn themselves. This album was not going to capitalize on Torn's, Torn's success, no matter how slickly produced it was. And to be clear, it did not capitalize on Torn's success. That has to be such a shitty feeling, just yeah. having someone else do your song better. You had so much more success on it. And then you're just like, okay, but no, but like, it's my song. Here, check this out. But again, she, just try to ride the wave. Yeah. But got a career as a songwriter and whatnot for it, you know? True. No, no. Yeah, you're right. But for the rest of the band. Yeah. That's just her. That's, like her bassist yeah. is like, fuck. Yeah. That's very, very true. Poor, poor Edna Swap. Yeah. The rest of the band. Well, and speaking of that, by the spring of 1999, Edna Swap was no more. Ah, well, we could have seen that coming. (laughs) Imbruglia wouldn't release her sophomore follow-up until 2001. An interesting year for many reasons. But for the purposes of this story, it's of, it's of note because in 2001, The Strokes released their debut album, Is This It? An album that much like Imbruglia's blew up over in the UK before America and the rest of the world. Is that it? Why, why am I bringing this up? Oh, well, you'll just, you'll, you'll just all have to wait, folks. I really never expected the Strokes to come up in the story of Torn. It's bizarre how connected in a weird way they are to Miss Imbruglia. We'll talk about that. Threads. Threads. November 5th, 2001 in the UK and November 27th, 2001 in the USA. That date saw those dates saw the release of Natalie Imbruglia's follow-up album White Lily's Island. White Lily's Island is an interesting album. It's perhaps perhaps her best album, and it's her first album where she is truly the principal songwriter and indeed has the first credit on every song. It should be noted, however, that producer Gary Clark also has writing credits on all songs except for about five. Other writers are involved as well. Anyway, now, White Lily's Island was a bit of a disappointment. The music, though undeniably better than anything on Left of the Middle, did not 
offer anything prime for pop stardom. White Lily's Island sold roughly 1 million copies worldwide. Compare that to Left of the Middle, which has sold well over 7 million copies worldwide. You'd think an unplayable CD would upset people more than her just covering a song. You really think, right? But apparently not. Yeah. They're just like, oh, whatever. We can't play this, but fuck yeah. <laughs> you, did a, you did a cover song? Kind of nuts, all right? Well, let's, let's put something in perspective. Left of the Middle was certified five times platinum in Australia. Three platinum. Time, three times platinum in England <laughs> and Canada and, and double platinum in America. So yes, every country has their own measure for platinum. But double platinum in America. So that means it at, sold at least 2 million copies in the USA alone, her, her debut album. The follow-up, White Lily's Island, did not go platinum in, in any single country. It is at perhaps 1 million worldwide. That's a letdown. And suffice to say, the album was not a critical darling. But the album was certified gold in England, meaning it definitely sold at least 100,000 copies in England. Oh, and it, it was certified gold in her home of Australia, which means it sold at least 35,000 copies in Australia. So, you know, it did 10% of the sales that her debut did in her home country. How about that? Uh, okay. Just if you're confused about why there's different numbers for different countries, it's about the population. size of the yeah, population. Yeah, of course. No, I'd say so 35,000 copies, I guess, is nice for Australia, but. No, but I'm just saying, like, that's why platinum is different. Not yeah. necessarily mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. her actual sales, but that right. measures different in different countries because of the percent of the population. Right. Uh, it is worth noting, however, that the U.S. lead single, Wrong Impression, was the first time since Torn that Umbrulia entered the U.S. charts. Well, at least she wrote that song. There you go, right? Yeah. He's a shit-covering motherfucker. Right now, what happens next is a minor mystery that nobody seems intrigued by, and it needs to be recognized for how strange it is. At least to me. I am talking about what is Imbruglia's rejected third album. An uncited sentence in Imbruglia's Wikipedia reads... I can't believe I'm quoting fucking Wikipedia. Anyway, Imbruglia's third album was in November 2003. Amazing. Amazing sentence. Imbruglia's third album was in November 2003. The record label refused to release it due to it being too rock and not radio friendly. She was given songs to record with Swedish pop producers Bloodshy and Avant, but refused. She and the record label separated at the beginning of 2004. That paragraph of four sentences has been copied and pasted ad infinitum. It's sadly all over the internet when you search for Imbruglia's mysterious, rejected, two-rock album. Even AllMusic.com succumbs to shoddy storytelling by simply saying, Imbruglia recorded a third album for BMG in 2003, but the label chose to not release it. After she appeared in the film Johnny English, Imbruglia and BMG parted ways in 2004. She then signed with Brightside Recordings, which released Counting Down the Days in April 2005. My gripe here, my gripe here, is they breezed through that so quickly and without qualification that you may think Counting Down the Days is her rejected third album, and it was merely released by a different label two years later. But that's not the case. So weird. The most definitive report... I can find is from an October 27th, 2017 stereo gum piece by Nate Patron, which confirms Imbruglia's third album was quote scrapped by the label for being too rock. And that's pretty much it. Nobody seems to be fucking upset about this. I want to hear 
I want to hear the Natalie and Brulia rock album. You know? Yeah, I guess they're doing their best to avoid another Edna swap. <laughs> well, as alluded to, Imbruglia returned to acting, appearing in the film Johnny English. She also left RCA BMG in 2004. April 4th, 2005, in the UK, and April 19th, in the USA, Natalie Imbruglia's new third album, Counting Down the Days, was released. It was released via a strange label called Brightside Recordings. Brightside Recordings was owned by Sony, which definitely owned RCA and BMG by the time this was released. So this was... It's one of those weird things since only three fucking companies own almost everything. She left her label to sign with another label, and both those labels were owned by Sony. In fact... <laughs> right? Right? In fact, this album was actually just straight up released by Sony BMG Japan in Japan and Sony Music Canada in Canada. What a fun industry. I just don't get the motivation for this bullshit illusionary Insane. music industry stuff. It's so confusing and seemingly unnecessary. I don't understand legalities I don't and business. I guess so. Maybe we need a lawyer that will explain this for us. We got to fit somebody knows. Just like, just the way companies legally launder money. I don't know. I have no idea. When? Well, in any case, 2005's Counting Down the Days was and is the closest Umbrulia has come to touching the success of Left of the Middle and Torn. But all was not well. Though this album did go gold in England, this was her first album to not receive any certification, platinum or gold, in her home country of... Australia. The album is overtly poppier than White Lily's Island, but it makes sure to stick to Imbruglia's brand of coffee shop singer-songwriter pop. No real risks were taken here. The album lead single, Shiver, did better than the previous six singles between her sophomore album and her debut's final two singles. But, as indicated, Shiver's success was not enough to propel the album to any great heights. Imbruglia began work on her fourth album almost immediately. But plans changed somewhere along the line. Focus was shifted from making a new record to releasing her greatest hits. And so, <laughs> in celebration of her decade in music, Brightside Recordings released Glorious, the singles, 97-07, to which means, yeah, this comp had a new and dedicated single. You know it's a greatest hits when they have to make a new song, like song for right? it yeah. to fill up the track listing, yeah. where they're like, oh, we're going to do greatest hits, but we're going to use another song for it. Well, and that song was glorious, and that song was released. It was a song. Yes, it was. It was a song that was released, and how about that? Isn't isn't that interesting now? Not interesting, <laughs> and not so glorious. Yeah, <laughs> Imbruglia was now back to work on her fourth album, but then, as they do, plans once again changed. Imbruglia parted ways with Brightside Records, Sony, BMG. So Imbruglia did what any pop star who hadn't had a true hit in over a decade would do. She bought all the rights to the songs she had written so far for her forthcoming album and started her own label called Malabar Records. Power move. That was sarcasm, by the way, folks, in case that didn't land. Just to be clear, most pop, most failing pop stars 
could not have done that. Right. So Imbruglia had and has money. She has a bona fide, I'm gonna, by this point, I'll say multi-millionaire. Those Australian dollars. Those Australian dollar dues, baby. Thanks in no small part to Torn's massive success and the equally massive success of her debut album. Right, right, right. But Imbruglia, Imbruglia did more than sing pop music. By this point, she had several high-level endorsement deals under her belt, including Gap and L'Oreal and... She also kept acting. And literally Australian dollars. Like, the dollary dues, baby. We taught you. But they're not even called dollary dues. They're just called Australian dollars. People call them dollary dues. People call them dollary dues. Dollary dues, right? No, I'm not making that up. I, you, I, I consume Australian media. All right. I mean, I believe you. It's just... Yeah. Okay. Shout outs to Shill Up. Hey, 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 Skill Up. That's a, it's a, never mind. anyway. Anyway, so do you perhaps yeah, do her on. sustained high profile despite not doing well in her musical career? Her fourth album was put out in Australia via Island Records. Yeah, I mean she's got a successful acting career. Why wouldn't they put her? Right. Shit exactly. Out? So they did on August on October sixth, two thousand nine, and Brulia released her perhaps. Strangest album, Come to Life. It's it's the most overt attempt, anyway, at making a typical, huge, big quotes here, rock-influenced pop album. And Brulia was clearly no stranger to having other folks write songs for her, <laughs> or write songs that she would cover, but this album sees her more fully embrace that sort of pop star kind of just-get-the-dope-song-any-way-possible ethos. For example, Chris Martin... Oh. of the fucking cold play has three co-write credits on this album and Brian Eno worked on this oh. album as a producer as well yeah specifically for the Martin Penn track Lucas she really spent the big bucks on this one yeah, right exactly this album is fucking weird man it's mostly saccharine pop but the track my god kind of rocks and has a sexy edge to it and, and so does want and W-Y-U-T, I think that's how you say that. I don't know. But that song kind of fucks, too. Like You like a song called My God? I mean, it's not a song about God. Okay. You know? I didn't listen to I it. I can tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I think she sounds tough on those songs. And then there's the album cover. The cover is, I mean... Okay, Natalie Jane Imbruglia is a stunning human being. She's gorgeous, and that's perhaps unfortunately brought up in everything ever written about her, which is kind of unfair to her. And I was, you know, I was going to try to not, but you know, I am, but it's for a reason. So and here it goes. So Imbruglia has always been a gorgeous woman, but this album cover sees her kind of vamping it up for her anyway, for Natalie Imbruglia, who's pretty modest. Actually, this is her being a sexy pop star on this album cover. It really looks like a MySpace <laughs> yeah, profile yeah. picture to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like totally early e-girl. I definitely dated a girl who looked like that. And yeah. I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I bring all of this up, all this, her embracing a pop format and embracing sex appeal because I want to be clear, she really, she really went for it on this album. This isn't covered anywhere. This is this is deduction turning into inference, turning into perhaps wild speculation, but not baseless speculation. This album was her attempt to fucking kill Torn and be a real ass, capital P S pop star. And it didn't work. Yeah, I know it didn't it didn't happen for her. In fact, the album did so badly in her home country of Australia 
that the plans to release it in the UK and the USA were canceled. This was, in effect, a second rejected album for her, which ah, must have been heartbreaking. Though, of course, now thanks to streaming and digital music at large, you can, of course, enjoy the album come to life. Yeah, but it's also like, you know, Torn was almost rejected too initially because they didn't decide to put the effort into marketing and budgeting for that in the U.S. Yeah, true. Yeah. I wonder if any of the songs would have hit like Torn if they had put a fraction of what they should have put in for Torn. You know what I'm saying? Why not gamble since you're already so far up from that track? I don't know. That's, no, that's a strong point, man. That's a strong point. Maybe I'm a gambling man. <laughs> Maybe you are. <laughs> but, you know, I'd be like, listen, we're fucking up on Torn. Maybe she's got something else here. They probably heard the track. So there's nothing there. That's probably what it was. It's bad. Probably what it was. We're going to talk about that later. Well, now, another, another, another thing like her endorsement deals in film and TV career that we haven't focused too much on is, is her love life. But we should mention it for a few reasons. Sometime in the late 1990s, and really began David Schwimmer of the popular and overrated American situation comedy, The Friends. That is the correct way. Yes, that's how you know what the show is called. Yeah. There's no real reason to address this. It's just funny. Imagine, 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 folks at home. Imagine having sex with David Schwimmer. Imagine him telling you, folks at home, I like that. Yes, imagine... Ross Geller saying, I love being inside you. Mm. Mm. How about that? We're having, we're having fun here to start the second season off. I love that Ross Geller coming up is what turns this podcast into a hardy <laughs> one. But I'm totally with you. Friends is way Yeah, overrated. fuck that show, man. That's no neighbors. Let me tell and you. She probably loved that show. Show. She was so into the show. She was like, you are so funny and creative <laughs> and such a good representation of New York City in my experience living oh, my life oh my God. as a rich Australian woman. Wow. Hey, welcome to season two, everybody. This is, this is, this is, this is real. This is real. Kids, put your, put your fucking parents to bed now. In 1999, Imbruglia then began dating the Australian pretty boy rock star, Daniel Johns. Daniel uh, Johns, who has the name of a serial killer, is the lead singer for the rock band Silverchair, which, yeah. ooh, mm, that may be something we talk about a little bit more at some point soon. We'll I literally remember the first time I heard Silverchair and someone put them on for me and they are like, you gotta check out. This cool band, Silverchair. I think it was like, you know, when you shared music with someone and it was like sure, their, sure. their rebuttal to a song that I played for them. Sure. They're like, check out this cool shit. And uh, we don't like the same music today. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Well, didn't we didn't like the same music then? Not today either. Funny how that works out. Yeah. Well, Imbruglia and John's married in 2003. They had a strained relationship that doesn't appear to be volatile, but they definitely grew apart. They spent little time together. John's was always living in Australia. Imbruglia was often working in abroad. They announced their divorce on January 4th, 2008. Must have been some resolutions, right? Huh. 
Yeah. This is worth noting for both Imbruglia's next album and also her personal life. Do people make New Year's breakup resolutions? That's hilarious. <laughs> I, I hope. I hope. I wonder if there is an actual influx of divorces and breakups around that time. I'm so curious now. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Well, anyway, let's talk about it. Not the not the breakup resolutions, but 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 Spider Law. <laughs> Let's talk about Spider-Law. Imbruglia spent six years away from music. During this time, she focused on her acting and even became a British citizen. But by 2014, she was set to release new music. Well, new covers of old music. Yeah, that shit is her calling. Right, there we are again. That album went like platinum, platinum if she did all those covers. It must be the greatest selling album of all time based on what Torn did. Right? Whatever's higher than platinum. You would think that you would think that, that might be the case. 15 tracks of her doing covers? Come on. 100 million times platinum. Platinum, platinum. Yeah, how about that, huh? Natalie Bruley releasing an album exclusively of covers. Very, very interesting stuff there. I love it, really. It opens with... Uh, a cover of that creepy Julian Casablancas and Daft yep. Punk song, Instant Crush. Mm-hmm. And I love that we're talking about the Strokes more. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm like gonna say a bluegrass I, cover Yeah, right. That was weird. Of Friday I Am In Love. That was a weird fucking cover, man. And this is where The Cure comes back around. Oh, wow. Yeah, very true. I, I didn't think about that. I wonder... She must be aware that Phil Thorne only was, worked with The Cure and was a bass player. And She had to have. Yeah, I would assume so. I would assume so. Well, anyway, this, this album, this covers album, is noteworthy because all the chosen covers were written by men, and so the album was called Male, and I find that to just be... Interesting. I think it's interesting that this was her choice for her next album after divorcing her husband. I also think it's interesting that now Imbruglia is a mother and she's a mother thanks to IVF and she feels very confident in not needing a partner. So I don't want to make a big deal out of this at all, but Imbruglia definitely has a unique and interesting relationship with men or males. It's clearly very much her personal experience, but I, I it, 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 it can be seen creeping into her music in just ways and so i just wanted to touch on that also the strong tatted man arms on the album cover that album cover was it's it's a very erotic album cover but very tasteful it's very tasteful just strong manly arms holding just framing her face her face yeah Mm. Mm. Mail was released on July 31st, 2015 via Sony Masterworks, marking a return to the Sony Music Group family of labels. Sony Masterworks is an odd label. It is the result of Sony Classical merging with BMG Classics and RCA Red Seal, which was RCA's classical label. Sony Masterworks is... As I said, an odd label. It's released music for Yanni, Rick Wakeman, Placido Domingo, Roger Waters, Leah Michelle, and a bunch of Euro trash. Yeah, IG fuckboy looking dudes holding violins and cellos and old men with pianos. There's, there's, actually, there's actually a group called the Piano Guys on that label. Uh, uh, and, and Yo-Yo Ma. 
Huh. Yeah. So, you know, this is, as we've touched on, this is music exclusively sold by the cash register at Starbucks and Barnes and Noble. You folks got it. Yeah. Shit that's stuck been, that's been stuck in the CD player of your aunt's minivan for 12 <laughs> years. Oh, God. <laughs> the worst. And this brings us, folks, this brings us to the future. Well, the future, like, from a few days ago. September 24th, 2021. Making this the most, like, timely Bad Band Great Song episode ever. It's still technically the past. <laughs> <laughs> man, you know, time is just this weird thing, Depends man. Depends where you're standing, right? Depends where you're standing, exactly. Oh, and if you haven't noticed, by the way, folks, no more separated country-specific release dates, you know? That's the internet. Isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that kind That's of one of our wild how that happens? One of the blessings of the internet. So, and on this date, Natalie Imbruglia released her sixth studio album, Firebird. That would be the sound of Firebird makes. That I'm is, with it. Yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Firebird was released via BMG Rights Management, which... Despite some confusion on the internet, which is <laughs> confusion on the internet, what a surprise. This is not the same exact BMG that is currently owned by Sony. In fact, not at all. BMG rights management is 100% owned by Bertelsmann, which is a private German company. You see, Bertelsmann started BMG rights management after selling its stake in Sony BMG in 2008. So... Mm, don't believe what you read on the internet, folks. This is not exactly a return to her original label, but it is spiritually. The Australian spirit. <laughs> oh, Firebird features ah! songs. <laughs> Firebird features songs written by Imbruglia and various folks, including Albert Hammond Jr. An interesting connection, seeing as how the Jerry touched on the yeah. primary single from her covers album was Julian's song with Daft Punk, Instant Crush. And More here it strokes. is. That's it. Is, is this, this it? it? That's it. This is it. This is it. This is it. This is, is this the it? only reason I brought up the Strokes debut album and Imbruglia's sophomore album, both coming out in 2001. Is that it? Threads. Threads and mm. Strokesy guitar lines. And Strokesy guitar lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Firebird and its lead single, Build It Better, has yet to chart anywhere. For reference, Build It Better, which was released on June 18th, 2021, currently sits at 599,144 plays on Spotify and 692,646 views on YouTube. It's totally a cookie cutter pop song. I feel like I've heard it before 30,000 times, but for sure haven't. So yeah, folks, it's not really, uh, not really, not really, really doing huge numbers. How about that? Isn't that interesting? And that's Natalie Imbruglia's story. Wow. We got there. Wow. How about that? Let's talk about the critical reaction, commercial impact chart, success, and fan response to this song. How okay. about we do that? Yeah. Critical reaction. Well, folks, uh, guess what? We're starting season two off with another one of my favorite show tropes. The critical reaction was mixed. Yes, <laughs> it was mixed. Shocking. How about people that? People have different. Wait, people have different opinions. Isn't that crazy? Differing opinions. Isn't that that's between honestly fucking stupid. Humans? 
how where do they get off having That's not ideas how different than this mine? This is supposed to work. No. This album was not well reviewed, but critics couldn't ignore Torn's validity. Though many were kind of shook and skeptical of their own appreciation of it, which was kind of funny to see. That's funny. Commercial impact. Torn's commercial impact cannot be underestimated. It, and really it alone, pushed the album left of the middle to 7 million plus sales worldwide. The single itself has sold at least 1.8 million copies worldwide and continues to be a streaming sensation for Imbruglia. And karaoke bangers. <laughs> karaoke, you know? Chart success. Well... Damn, this single was a worldwide hit. It was just number one and and the top five and in the top ten of so many countries. In America, its story, as we touched on, is a little shadier. As we discussed, Billboard the Boomer. That's literally what they are. That's really such is, a good I nickname. Know. You Thank come you. up with that? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. so good. You know, we we got to stick to that. We do, we do. I'm gonna do we're going to do that from now on. Spider-Law, Billboard the Boomer. We already got, we already got new memes for season two. Well, Billboard the Boomer had some old school rules that prevented singles from being on the Hot 100 if they didn't have the physical release for consumers to buy, as we talked about. Radio and music television didn't matter, right? And streaming, no. This was 1997, 1998. What even is streaming? I don't know. So that said, Imbruglia's Torns still had some impressive achievements. Let's hear them. <laughs> it was number one on... The Billboard Hot 100 Airplay chart, the Mainstream Top 40 chart, the Adult Top 40... Chart. Adult Top 40. It peaked at number four on the U.S. Adult Contemporary chart. It peaked at number 12 on the U.S. Modern Rock Tracks chart. And, of course, it eventually peaked at number 42 on the Billboard Hot 100. Though, had it been allowed to chart during its prime, it would have no doubt hit number one and stayed there for quite a while. Wow. <laughs> oh, oh, that's going to be on here eventually. Uh, or maybe I'm on the outside. Well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna figure that out. Fan response. Well, I mean, uh, the people who loved it really loved it, as evidenced by everything we just detailed. Karaoke. But as we discussed in today's <laughs> song, there were some folks who felt betrayed by Torn not being an original of Song of Imbruglia. Let's go. Let's get into segment three and talk about what makes the band bad. What band? The Natalie Imbruglia band. I know, I know, but it's just like, yeah. Well, this really amounts to a simple concept. Imbruglia is a band without a scene, as we like to say here on this show. She's an artist without a specific angle and defining sort of filter through which ideas pass and then kind of just come out uniquely her own. Yeah, she's just a regular-ass, everyday Australian woman. <laughs> There's nothing that defines Natalie Imbruglia sonically. There is no signature to her sound. Even her voice is woefully indistinct. Torn is her most recognizable vocal performance. She doesn't typically sound like that. Additionally, and specifically, the arrangements in Imbruglia's debut album are that very messy and aimless and always out-of-date sounding 90s pastiche that was clearly an effort to figure out how adult contemporary artists should sound. And believe me, I was alive then. This sound was never cool and always confused sounding. Torn 
may have been massive, but nothing about Imbruglia's music is geared toward teeny boppers and kids. No. She, we, no, she wasn't a straight-up slick pop star. Torn is the most current, cutting-edge, trendy, and of the zeitgeist she ever sounded. Dare I say it's the most relevant to the precious late teen to early 20s market she's ever been. It's the most young she and her music ever skewed. That's how you feel. That's how I f- This is how I feel. But that's not her and her music. Imbruglia makes adult music. Alone, afraid, and naked. Naked on the floor. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that funny how that happens? These days, things are a little less strict, I think, anyway. Sure, super trendy pop music isn't designed with 40-year-olds in mind. But Gen Xers and Boomers, as well as old millennials, are aware of the same shit that Zoomers are. And Gen Z kids know who the fucking Foo Fighters are and other shit like that. But back in the 90s, back in the 90s, adult contemporary was a thing. And despite being a pretty specific range of things, adult contemporary was a thing without any direction. Natalie Imbruglia didn't have any direction. And after listening to Firebird, I, I, I would say she still doesn't. Yeah, she's just making music for the fuck of it. Yeah, like, agreed. It's a hugely self-satisfying thing. Let's be very real. Very, I agree with you. It's so not... I mean, I don't know. No, I, I, I agree with you, and I'm going to make that case, honestly. <laughs> Songs like Big Mistake are a great example of, of this lack of direction she has. The rawness and intensity the chorus calls for just doesn't make sense with her. She isn't that type of vocalist. To hear her try to yowl and, and peel the paint off the walls is basically the same thing as trying to hear as, as expected to hear James Taylor trying to be Rob Halford. It just it, it, it doesn't work. The guy's voice and inner life doesn't match that sort of primal scream. Well, just that firebird caca, that's more of her. That- <laughs> I feel like that fits. <laughs> I actually feel like that's very Rob Halford right there, man. Yeah. And when Imbruglia is expected to rock, she sounds incredibly out of place and like a performer being told to do that. That's another thing that, that really kind of sucks when she tries to rock. Right. She comes off like the type of singer pop star who is as follows, basically. Singer with no discernible individual style who has presented songs that don't make sense and is pushed to write songs with producers and other songwriters chasing a sound that isn't the sound the singer would pursue without that outside influence. White Lily's Island kind of supports that. It's her trying to get away from that. It's her trying to declare that she is an artist and define her sound. The album starts very strongly with that day. This album may have her strongest songwriting to date. I honestly think that, but it lacked anything remotely resembling a hit. Her subsequent albums were more half-hearted and fully confused attempts at making statements. Because of Torn, Imbruglia has a legion of sort of fans who are very obsessed with her, or who they think she might be. But with a bit over 500,000 streams of her new song that's been out, I guess over six, almost 600,000 streams. With almost 600,000 streams at this point of her new song that's been out for three months as of this recording, I'm going to say her audience isn't there. There is no significant audience for her music. There is, however, an audience, a significant audience for her cover of Torn. And her cover of her cover of Torn. <laughs> her cover her of her cover. Her acoustic cover yes, of exactly. her cover of Torn also has a lot of legs, which is incredible. That is amazing. These just, you know... 
Yeah, sometimes it just doesn't fucking work, honey. <laughs> well, and while I typically think the average music fan is awful and indistinct and not discerning taste, sometimes an artist is ignored for very valid reasons. Imbruglia's career is an example of the audience totally understanding that she isn't very good at all. And her career is also an incredible example of what wealth can achieve. I'm sorry, but if she weren't financially independent, she wouldn't keep releasing music. She's, she's, she wouldn't she would have been prepared to start her own fully functioning label backed fully by her and her alone just to put out albums that actual labels didn't want to carry. Yeah, no one does that. Right? Her entire career is a testament to great luck. In fact... Great luck. That's her career. Let, let's look at this quote from an interview with The Mirror on August 23rd, 2015, written by Emma Jones. When Jones asked Imbruglia about how she's constantly traveling and just enjoying life without doing much work at all, Imbruglia responds by saying, quote, I don't work around the clock, and I don't apologize for that. I've discovered what I do doesn't define me. I want to be happy, and not everyone wants to work that hard. I find it miserable to be pushing my career constantly. That's not what I want for my life. I'm a bit lazy, but I'm fine with it. Real, but not as real as Shifty. Oh, Natalie. I, <laughs> real, but not as real as Shifty. Agreed. And I mean, listen, I, yo, I agree with her. Like, I agree with her. What we do does not define us, and I don't want to be fucking working all the time, and I don't think any human was born to say, would you like fries or that? I don't think any human was born to be like, That'll be 1795. I don't think any human was born to sit in front of a computer and type things all day and code and do marketing. But here we are. Here we are. And for her to not have to do that and to say that, I, you know, it's just that's a, that's a wildly privileged stance to have. Or not to have, but, but to actually live, to live that life. And still enjoy all the trappings of modern convenience and ca modern conveniences in capitalism, right? You're like, I'm not going to fucking work. I don't want to work. And you're still going to really enjoy the trappings of modern conveniences and capitalism. And then some, like a lot, a lot of some, and then some more, all while not working hard at all. And when you do work, it's cutting an album that will not chart or sell or even stream well. Or acting, acting, act, that's work too, I guess. I'm sorry. You know, I know this is ad hominem as fuck right now, but most artists whom I'm already very critical of because I hate celebrity culture can't afford to, you know, continually put out bad music and not have to work. <laughs> That's usually the end of an artist's career. Hell, there have been articles about Demi Lovato's, articles that I've read recently about Demi Lovato's team now looking to get them into acting because the team sees Lovato's music career as cresting, if not outright declining. So they're pivoting. Imbruglia's just chilling. Imbruglia's lucky and smart, but very lucky and fortunate. And has some weight behind her. For sure. No, of course, she has... A single that is huge, you know. Lots of neighbors. And lots of neighbors. Now, hey, listen, I'm not going to say Imbruglia doesn't deserve her success, but her career is interesting because it's 100% an exercise in luck. 
She got born beautiful. She had enough talent to enter the entertainment industry at a young age. She met her manager in a pub by accident, and it changed the course of her life. She was presented a song that had already been a moderate success for two other artists, and she got to work on the song with one of the people who wrote it. Her version of the song, for whatever magical reason, has eclipsed every other version of the song and was a massive hit. It was such a hit that she never had to have a hit again as long as... She also took nice endorsement deals, judged some reality TV competition, and did some acting. Hung out with the neighbors. Hung out with the neighbors. To be very clear, Imbruglia herself has never come remotely close to even attempting to sort of somewhat duplicate Torn's success. So, I'm sorry, but her success is not due to her own talent as a pop star or her own appeal on camera as an actor or spokesperson. Her success is due to a lot of things coming together that you couldn't really replicate if you tried. There's a lot going on that made and, and makes Natalie Imbruglia who she is, but it is not the merit of her music. Far from it. In fact, in very many ways, Natalie Imbruglia may actually be the absolutely, truly most awful performer we've discussed. Paloma is pretty yeah. up there. P.O.D. is up there. But Natalie Imbruglia is a real sleeper, just bad artist, you know? Not, not offensively bad. She's just very, very, very bad. You know? Completely lacking. Completely lacking. All right. What makes this song great? Okay. Okay. All right. Some technical analysis here. Okay. So this is going to be a funny way of starting off season two. We're just, we're just, just getting everything right. All right. <laughs> this song, technically speaking, plays it completely safe and does everything by the books. This is a pure pop song falling under some sort of folk plus rock rubric. This song is just a simple verse, pre-chorus, chorus, repeat, bridge, chorus, outro kind of song. But there's, there's one glaring omission from Torn's adherence to the traditional Duragur pop song craft. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. There's no hook. No there's no hook. hook. There's no fucking hook. No hook. It just begins, and it... Has like a, it has like a signature startup sound, like a fucking computer. It just kind of gently crashes and hums into being. It's just kind of like a, and then the guitar strumming starts, and that's instantly recognizable, which is no small success. That's like a huge deal, kind of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's very impressive that without any hook, we have such a strongly identifiable sounds and tones. From a songwriting perspective, the song is so airtight and classically constructed. It's an amazing example of what various production teams and recording artists can achieve with the same very well-written song. A song like Torn is a song made for the industry. It's a song that's designed for a team to take and make their own. But perhaps the strongest choice made with this song is how Thornley took cues from each previous version. This was a Farian-style, faux-focused group sort of thing here. This song... It's so brilliant. Re yeah, right? It, it evolved in over kind of a, nearly a decade. It just iterated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just grew. It did. The song took the format... Well, you know, carrier pigeons. <laughs> it takes a long time. It does. It really it does. The song took the format of Liz Sorison's version, the rawness and iconic melancholic slide solo from Madness Swap, and the emphasis and pop polish of Trine Rain's version, along with its bridge, and it put it all together. But most importantly, 
made sure com- they made sure complimented Imbruglia and vice versa. This is a song that was made in a lab. It really was. And that leads us to the personal analysis. Let's get there. Fucking K-pop and fucking acting. Uh, Let's talk about tell it. Tell me more. Let's talk about it. You catch that, by the way? I'm getting this. Getting this. Let's talk about it over now. That's a new thing. I'm. It's a new thing I'm doing. This is what season two sounds like. How about that? Not interesting. Let's talk fascinating about stuff. It. Okay. Anyways, so let's talk about it. Let's so talk let's about talk it. about it. You really just got your shit in there. It huh? really. Yeah. Yeah. I really just did. That is. It's kind of like everything I say. You know. Re- re- I mean. I think it really was, wasn't it? It was like an entire episode of one paragraph. It really was, wasn't it? I mean, I guess maybe I'm missing some stuff, but... Oh, well, you know what they say. You can bring a horse home, but you can't make it fuck your wife. Consent is key, folks. So let's bring this horse home. Okay. All right. Fucking K-pop. Korea. And fucking acting. What, What do I mean? Well, K-pop is very intentional music. All pop music is. Most... Great art. Maybe I can't say all, but certainly most great art is intentional. Purpose. Yeah, exactly. There's a driving need, and as you just said, a purpose behind it. There's a carefully considered design, presentation, and delivery for it. And a predetermined market. And a predetermined market, exactly. Now, K-pop really takes us to the next level. K-pop is the product of iteration, international iteration, just stringent testing and careful design in a way we've not quite seen before. It's International appeal comes in part from from doing a version of American pop music that's more broadly appealing than what Americans churn out. It can be likened to and seen as an extension of the works of legendary Swedish producers Max Martin and Denny's Pop, just to name a few. And Denny's Pop and Max Martin, by the way, for those who don't know, wrote Everybody, Everybody by the Backstreet Boys, as well as I Want You Back by NSYNC, just to name a few. I bring it up because... There are a couple of Swedes who actually did American pop music better than Americans. They made our pop music. ABBA. I believe, ABBA, yeah, sure, that, that's great American pop music. Yeah. I believe that Natalie Imbruglia's cut, I know ABBA's not American, don't come at me in the comments, folks, I'm a fucking, I'm smart, okay, come on. Anyway, I believe that Natalie Imbruglia's cover of Torn. Well, this is how you feel. Was a K, this is how I feel, guys. Was a K-pop style sort of finely workshopped and tested Mm, song, except instead of an entire genre, we're just talking about a single song here, right? And this single Uh, song, (laughs) and this single song had already been recorded and released four separate times before Imbruglia's version. This song really was designed in a lab and perhaps supporting my statement, Thornley tells tape op quote, over the next week or two, Natalie and I got together we spent a lot of time working on perfecting a vocal performance for our demo. And that's kind of what's amazing about it, too, is, well, it's, like, designed in their lab in the studio, but also with all this real-world evidence from the, you know, from previous releases and previous renditions. They had so much opportunity to learn and adapt and then take it to the lab. It's where usually you're just stuck in a lab. Yeah. No, no, no. A lot of different... They had, a, they had a lot of sources to pull from. Yeah. Well, so this brings me to my final point. Fucking acting. Natalie Imbruglia is an actor. Something we touched on earlier. Something yes. Jeremy brought up. So, she, due to her acting, just as much as her singing, delivered a character-heavy but very real-sounding performance of the song. 
Liz Sorensen's version is a very workmanlike performance of a song from a very professional recording artist. Trine Rain's version is a strong performance itself. All I have to say about it's strong. And Previn with Edna Swap. Well, her performances are incredible, but it's not appealing to a main, the mainstream, and, and also really nobody heard them. Yeah. Yeah. Imbruglia's performance, however, is lived in and real. She did her homework here as an actor. Also she, the video. The video? Like literally the acting. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's a thousand times better than Trine Rain's video. <laughs> I actually really love the Trine Rain video. It's weird. that I love the, like, the horses. I, whatever. What? The, nothing happens in that video. No, it's nothing. literally just shots. They try to just show her boobs as much as <laughs> possible. It's really weird. She's a beautiful woman. But anyway. Yeah, but like... Come on, it's it's just like literally blatant. Like it shows her face, and then it's like it's a very, it's a, it's a very sexy video. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's like nothing but that, though. Maybe if that. So it's a, whatever. There's it doesn't cool age well at all. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you, man. Back then, I would have been like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Imbruglia perhaps more than any other performer who's touched this song. She really sounds like the person who this song happened to. I mean, obviously the authenticity and realism is there when Previn sings it. There's, there's no way it can't be. She wrote it. But Imbruglia delivers a masterful performance here in the way that an actor may perform a writer's work better than the writer themselves. Imbruglia rarely ever sounds this juvenile and breathy ever again. This really isn't her voice. She's more of a belter, frankly. White Lily's Island shows that right out the jump with, with That Day. Her new track, Build It Better, shows that. And Brulia is a full voice singer, but here she was playing a role, and she played it very well. And I believe personally these are the two core reasons, at least two of the core reasons, that her version is a definitive and most known version of the song. K-pop. Fucking acting. Well, shit. Season two, episode one in the can. Thank you for joining us, folks. So if that's it, that's it. It really is. I think it's time to bid you all, the folks at home, good night and farewell. So, folks, thank you for your time. Stay strange, be kind, and love yourselves. And yeah, if you're going to make music, like find some inspiration, clearly, because they found some inspiration from Torn. That worked. But nothing else landed. No. No. And isn't that something, folks? Isn't that something? We'll see you now, folks. Good night.